This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin, and today I'm joined by Sam Jeske, Senior Fellow here at MP, and Michael Neinheis, President and CEO of UNICEF USA. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to talk to you. Can you start by telling our audience a bit more about your personal background and the work that you do at UNICEF USA? Sure. And, uh, you know, UNICEF uh, globally is the largest um, uh, agency working to improve the lives of children in difficult circumstances around the world. And and here we represent UNICEF here in the U.S. And um, I have personally been involved in global humanitarian work for about 25 years and uh, come most recently from a, a global health focused uh, organization. Uh, that I led for about six years. So I, in, in my experience over the past 25 years, I've you know, traveled to 50 countries. I've been in most of the big disasters you've heard of, lots of ones you haven't, um, you know, been in slums and in rural areas and all the difficult places where um, humanitarian aid groups tend to work. And thrilled to have a chance to come and join UNICEF uh, because, again, there's just no better um, global platform to impact kids around the world. So can you tell us a little bit what inspired you to get into this type of work? I know you just said you've been in um, this type of work for over 25 years. So what essentially made you get into this field when you first started? Very specifically, a nurse in Guatemala named Gloria, who I met um, uh, early in my career. First 10 years, I was a journalist and uh, did a reasonable amount of international reporting and um, had a real interest in what was happening in some of the poor countries and communities of the world. I was in Honduras reporting on the HIV pandemic in the mid-90s at the time. Uh, sorry, that's a long time ago for a millennial crowd, but um, but really important in the annals of uh, global health work. And while I was there, I was in a small village, uh, and I met a local nurse named Gloria, who was just a dynamo. She was transforming her community as a, as a nurse, as a, as a public health uh, specialist, as a community development specialist. She just was working with mothers and children and farmers and and uh, men in the community on on, uh, on on gender issues and just really uh, doing a tremendous work. And I had an epiphany moment going like, you know, I think she's the one who knows what needs to be done in these communities. I mean, how do, what do we know about that? But she certainly knows. Uh, maybe we should just get behind her and help her do her work. And I just decided that that's what I want to do with my life was to find people like her and, and help her. So it led me to uh, uh, find the uh, an organization that had trained her in community health practice. And that was a U.S.-based uh, humanitarian group. And I ended up joining them uh, on the communication side. And then kind of the rest is history. So, Michael, you just mentioned that you covered the HIV pandemic as a reporter. I'm curious, are there any parallels to the COVID pandemic? And how might your previous experience have informed your, your current work on COVID? 
Yeah, I would say two things. Certainly, um, uh, covering part of the HIV pandemic at the time, uh, the the uncertainties and the uh, you know what was not known about it wasn't even known what kind of disease it was or what to do with it. Uh, you know, early on, and we certainly faced those here too. What is COVID? How do you tackle it? Um, uh, you know, how do you get a vaccine or treatment for it? Those are all things we've dealt with again, and and sort of watching it spread wildly while we're trying to figure all of that out. So there's some parallels there too, but I would also say there's real parallels to uh, work I was involved in in West Africa during the Ebola crisis uh, as well, where public health measures, where where issues of uh, changing the behavior of citizens who interact with one another, where you 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 needed people to stay away from each other, you needed messaging on why that was important, you needed to change again those kinds of behaviors. Um, there's a lot of parallels I think to what we have. Uh, seen here. The difference is this is a global pandemic. We haven't seen anything like this before. And so the, the way to attack it is different, I think. Um, you know, the Ebola outbreak, the big one in West Africa and Liberia uh, and, and two surrounding countries, um, you know, it was, it was able to be contained in, in there and really work on it as a sort of a local issue. Uh, but this has been a global pandemic unlike anything we've seen before. So I think those are um, both some similarities and differences. So what has UNICEF USA been doing in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, both domestically and abroad? Yeah, abroad, um, certainly we've been engaged with UNICEF and its response uh, to uh, to the pandemic, and that has shown itself in many ways. Number one was the ability to, to get, to get uh, personal protective equipment and other supplies to uh, healthcare workers around the world. We've been able to deliver uh, those kinds of supplies to 40 million health workers um, uh, in countries that were affected early and also affected uh, later in the pandemic. So I think that's a, a critical piece, um, you know, immediately. But also doing things like um, worried about kids that are out of school and how do we make sure that they can continue their education. So we've got a really interesting technology platform called the Learning Passport that um, was developed uh, between UNICEF, UNICEF USA, and Microsoft to deliver curriculum to people who are, it was intended for refugee children who are out of school and out of their country so they can tap into their national curriculum. We've been able to adapt that for kids that are out of school um, uh, as well. So everything from trying to get kids the education they need to dealing with health workers on the front lines to, um, uh, you know, working with uh, the continuation of all of the really critical work that we do for children every day that can't stop either. So that's what we've been doing globally. And here in the U.S., you know, we work with a, a, a network of, of, of local organizations and advocates who um, typically are working with us on the global issues. And we've been able to get out to them all kinds of information on COVID and to spread to their communities about how to protect themselves and, and um, you know, stay uh, safe from this this pandemic. And then we've also had an interesting program that we do in schools um, called Kid Power that helps kids in schools have some activities that connect them to global causes and, and some physical exercise around it. And we've been able to make that available to parents. So they've been able to use that at home. And over the, over the course of time, we've had, you know, almost a million kids that, uh, that have been using Kid Power in one way or the other. So a whole variety of different ways that we've been able to respond. 
So, Michael, dealing with kids specifically, COVID-19, at first, it seemed like the world was under the impression that there was no real impact of COVID-19 on children. But we started to see, as this has gone on, that there are some complications, um, something that mirrors a Kawasaki disease, which is, uh, they have now termed it pediatric multisystem inflammatory syndrome. And I'm curious, as children start to return to normal, even though we don't have a vaccine, are we falling into a false sense of security that we are starting to flatten the curve, warm weather is around the corner, summer is back, people are starting to open up? Do you think that we're maybe going a little too quickly too soon? You know, it's so hard to tell, right? Because we haven't done anything like this before. So I think the the cautious steps that um, many states are taking to open back up again and watching it very carefully are are really uh, critical and important. You know, I hear a lot about um, reporting on increased number of cases that are identified. And uh, I think that's important to watch. Um, but testing is so much more widespread today. So that has something to do with the the, the increased case numbers that we see in certain places. Uh, I think one of the things we should be watching really carefully is hospitalizations, because that's a better indication of the seriousness of, of the disease and the pandemic is whether people are um, still being hospitalized. And you see, you know, different statistics around the country on all of that. So I think we just have to watch it real carefully as we step back into, uh, in, into life. One of the things that happens in cases like this, and this is true, like in the Ebola crisis in West Africa too, is that the attention to this one thing becomes so um, um, all-consuming that the other issues that people face, the other health issues that people face, are um, are ignored. So the way that played out in Ebola in West Africa was you had um, this was never fully counted, and you probably couldn't fully count it, but the the estimates are pretty high in terms of the number of people during the Ebola crisis that died from things like malaria, from childbirth, from accidents. The things that normally are being caught by the health system, but just were left unattended. And we have to be concerned about the same thing here, that there's all kinds of other issues that people are facing that they're not getting the treatments for. Just even vaccine vaccinations for children. You know, there's a UNICEF statistic that shows about 117 million children around the world are at risk of falling behind in their basic vaccines because of the COVID crisis. That's a huge problem that could lead to other problems down the road. So you know, the people have to make these decisions about when to open and when not to and how to go. Uh, you know, uh, glad I'm not one of them. But um, I think if we make very uh, slow steps and we um, we kind of measure things along the way, we can find the right balance here between dealing with COVID, dealing with the economy, dealing with all the other um, issues that people face from a, from a health perspective. What's up, everybody? We're going to take a quick break from the podcast and let you know that Millennial Politics is now on Spotify, Stitcher, the Google App Store, and iTunes, basically anywhere you get your podcast. If you like the show and like hearing from previous guests, such as Mayor Pete Buttigieg, former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley, and many more, make sure you subscribe, give us five stars, and leave a review. High ratings and good reviews are some of the best ways people can find us. And if you want to see us continue doing this work, we hope you'll consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics and join the movement. 
All right, now back to the show. So we discussed UNICEF USA's kind of response so far. What legislation or actions um, or government actions have you been pushing for that you would like to see implemented to combat issues that have been the direct result of the coronavirus pandemic? Well, I think the first thing that's really important to us is to um, continue to work with Congress to uh, continue its fund, its normal funding of UNICEF's work around the world. So our government is very generous uh, to, to UNICEF. We have we have really strong support on both sides of the aisle and long term support uh, for them. The the government makes an annual appropriation to UNICEF and then also funds. Um, you know, a great deal of specific projects and programs around the world. And this is all the ongoing work in health and water and sanitation and child protection and education that has to continue on. So our first message actually has been around that. Please don't forget that this ongoing work needs to be funded as well. And um, and gratefully, Congress, you know, continues to respond uh, well uh, to, to that message and continues to to fund UNICEF's work. The second thing that we worked on uh, in a coalition with, with other groups is to make sure that in these supplemental bills that have been passed to, um, to deal with COVID, that, that uh, there, there is money in there for the global, um, uh, the global effort to fight, um, uh, to fight COVID as well. Because it's not, you know, it's, it's now beginning to seep into some of the places that we're fearful about, right? Some of the poor countries that have um, uh, weaker health systems and, and are not in a position to have a lot of people working from home and to have social distancing the way that we've done it and places where there are refugees and um, internally di- uh, displaced people that just don't have some of the same advantages to try to, um, you know, stay uh, isolated um, in, in that way. And, and Congress has been pretty good about that, too, in terms of putting money toward, um, toward the COVID response globally. So we're, we're grateful for that. So when you talk about the wide range of issues that UNICEF USA and, and UNICEF broadly works on, um, it almost sounds like you'd have to be pretty heartless to, to cut the budget. Um, but there's always more work to be done. And especially as a result of COVID-19 initiating a flurry of layoffs and furloughs, especially in the United States, we're, we're in the midst of a deep economic recession. Um, but your organization does a lot of work around mitigating child hunger and child malnutrition. Can you talk a little bit more about why that's particularly important right now? Yes, because um, you know malnutrition is a great uh, issue. Just to just just think about if if, uh, if 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 infants and very young children are not getting the um, the nutrition that they need in those early stages, it literally affects them uh, for life. You know, over eighty percent of a baby's brain is formed by the age of three. And whatever um, they're lacking in those first three years is not just going to impact those three years of their life, but the rest of their life and their, their chance to really live out a full potential. And we need that next generation, you know, coming up and, and being fully capable to uh, to lead um, uh, when it's when it's their turn. Uh, so that basic work, basic early you know, vaccines, all those vaccinations that are necessary, UNICEF, um, you know, pr- uh, distributes and provides about 45% of the vaccines for children around the world. How critical is that, that we continue to do that? The child nutrition programs, you know, basic water and sanitation available, uh, to them, uh, at that, at that early stage. These are things that lots of children 
don't take for granted around the world. Lots of families don't take for granted around the world, and, and we need to continue to to work on them. So that's why it's so important. And again, that's why our message is even in the midst, midst of the fight against COVID, it can't be one or the other here. It has to be a both and. You know, we have to 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 do the basic work that's ongoing, that's necessary, and we have to fight COVID uh, at the same time. And that's a that's a big ask in the midst of the kind of economic climate that we're in. Uh, but gratefully, you know, the, the the government funding has has stood fairly strong. We've had really strong support from our corporate and foundation uh, partners, and even individual donors. Um, you know, we've we've seen a good response uh, to all of this from our individual supporters as well. So transitioning a bit to the other news of the day, um, race relations and the recent social unrest in the United States, you put out a powerful statement the other day about racial justice and UNICEF USA's commitment to helping young people have a seat at the table and working to infuse equity in government policies. Does UNICEF USA have any plans for immediate action in response to the current situation of police brutality and protests? Yeah, uh, yes, we do. And, and, and I'll, I'll point to a couple of things. And I, I, I wanted to um, thank you for mentioning the statement. I just wanted to, to read one paragraph from that statement because I think it it helps um, frame why we as a child focused organization are so concerned about what we're about what we're seeing. And we said in that statement, you know, we're deeply concerned about the profound impact on children of color whose families already know the effects of institutional bias feel the disproportionate weight of the COVID-19 pandemic, and now, once again, see unjust violence against people who look like them. These compounding experiences risk shaping the way children see themselves, the world, and their place in it far into the future. Again, for children, um, again, their view of the world, their brains, the way they see themselves, all of that are being formed now. And in in those communities that really face this kind of racial injustice, um, that has a long-term impact. So we, we have to think about it, not just in, you know, how do police deal with protesters and what are their, you know, do they do chokeholds or not do chokeholds? That's all critically important. We have to think about how all that reflects on, on children who are going up and watching all of this. So uh, we think it's really important. We have an initiative in the, in, in the U.S. called, um, child friendly, the child friendly cities initiative, which is working with, um, cities around the country. Uh, to to help them develop um, laws and policies and practices that are, um, are that are child friendly and are based in child rights, uh, and we're going to ramp up. Uh, we've been doing that work already, but we're going to accelerate some of that work because we think it ties in closely to the conversations that they're already going to be having about about the role of police, about the role of education, about the role of mental health and psychosocial support, all of those things that are. Um, going to be brought to the table. There needs to be a child lens on all of that. And our Child Friendly Cities Initiative, I think, is a part of that. Um, we also have um, you know, really active UNICEF clubs and high schools and colleges across the country. And those young people have a voice. We need to hear their voice, too. Uh, so we're going to be doing what we can to help profile um, the way they see all of this and what they want to see happen for the future. So one aspect of the the move to to find equity in corporate America, but also in the nonprofit se- sector, is ensuring that leadership teams actually look like 
the rest of the organization or the United States or, or the world at large. And we happen to take a look at your board of directors and UNICEF USA does in fact have a diverse board. And I have to imagine that that was done deliberately. Can you tell our audience a bit about your internal diversity philosophy at UNICEF USA? Yes, we we're, take this very seriously and, and increasingly so. And we have a, a formal diversity, equity, and inclusion process uh, that is ongoing within the organization to really look at um, everything from recruitment practices and policies to um, creating the kinds of work environments where everybody feels um, fully welcome and, and fully appreciated. Um, we are actually going through a, a, a board evaluation process right now with our board of directors. Uh, on a variety of topics, just as sort of a, a, a good practice to do that from time to time. And, and, and additional diversity of our national board is a, is a key, um, uh, priority for us as well. Uh, you know, we recognize that the, that strength does in fact come from diversity, that different points of view that come out of different experiences and backgrounds, uh, actually make organizations, leadership teams, boards, uh, stronger. Uh, than they would be otherwise. Um, I think that the current environment we are in, uh, the renewed attention to racial justice issues uh, is going to make all of that even more important and, and cause us as well as, you know, all other institutions in the, in the country, we hope um, to sort of double down on that and pay even more attention. So lastly, how can people learn more about you and UNICEF USA? How can they contribute to these causes that your organization feels strongly about? Well, obviously, the best way to, to get an initial touch point with us is through our website, unicefusa.org, and to learn more about the work that we do and the way we go about it. Uh, we love to get people involved, too, as I said, you know, for um, high school and college students. Uh, we have active UNICEF clubs all over the country, and we'd love to get them plugged into into that. It's a way to to both be engaged locally um, with a uh, with a group of peers who also have a, a global vision uh, and and learn more about what's happening uh, around the world. Um, so yeah, uh, please touch base with us. Uh, be in touch with our with our team. There's lots of contact information on the website. Uh, to be able to do that. And of course, you know, we, we need financial support as well. As I said, this is a both and moment. We need support for all of the ongoing work that we carry out and we need to respond to COVID. So it's a time for those who, who have resources and, and, um, and want to make a difference to, to plug in, um, to us and help us, help us do some of that work. And again, I just want to say, if you want to reach children, vulnerable children around the world, there's just no better platform to do it than UNICEF. Michael, thank, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. And on a personal note, I know I speak for Sam and myself. It was wonderful to connect. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your interest in including us. We really appreciate your audience. It's really important to us. Awesome. And for our listeners, be sure to check us out on social media at Millennial Politics. Uh, find our website, millennialpolitics.co. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash millennialpolitics. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, and Stitcher, and stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks. <laughs>